0: so uh anyway it's very good to to see everyone and uh see how many are out there but yeah <laughs> turn your cameras on is always good so um i realized i should probably uh share a little context about what we're up to here um for anyone especially the new folks and uh so let's see sims so historically Every year, the Guiding Teachers of Sims have chosen a theme to work on over the year. And this year, the theme is uh, four sets of threes. Code there is that the way the Buddha taught, he used lots of lists. And so there are some really beautiful lists, which are threes of different things. So we're doing four of those, and we're in the first set of three here in February, and the initial set of three is what's often called the Three Jewels, or Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, and technically sounds like a weird, traditionally, when one becomes, decides to follow the Buddhist path, and they sort of, you've taken that on, and you take refuge in the Three Jewels. And there can be whole ceremonies of that. The Sims does a ceremony. Every year, I myself took refuge. 87, I think, from Venerable Gelal Rippa, a great mama, Tibetan Lama, in a two-day retreat. Um, and so it's kind of beautiful. It's like taking refuge is this wonderful idea that in the midst of you know the storms of outward life or our inward lives, we can land somewhere. Taking refuge is like... A ship going into a harbor where the water is calm. You know, a safe place to reestablish. Well, it's a beautiful, a beautiful metaphor to work with. Uh, so in January, there were a series of teachings on taking refuge in the Buddha. And then here in February, we're taking refuge, discussing taking refuge in the Dharma. And uh, it's kind of, I'm appreciating my colleagues because there is sort of, it's all supported zero micromanaging in this instance, in which uh, Twery taught twice, Kerry Peterson taught once, and I'm the fourth, and we've talked to each other, but we haven't tried to coordinate it particularly. It's like, just follow your heart, and it'll be okay. So that's what I'm doing. And I did... uh, uh Twery kind of that, that interesting. She talked the first time kind of about stuff we take refuge in outer life that maybe doesn't get as much of anywhere. And then she talked on an inward level and then Carrie did this beautiful sort of lyrical offering. So I'm going to, and I listen, listen to those to varying degrees, and I want to offer something that I hope will land for you when, you know, Make a difference. I'm hearing a sort of low echo, not echo, but kind of resonance. Is that the base is too high or something? I don't know. But whatever. So that's my goal. Whoops. That's entirely. That's my goal with this is to have this make a difference for you. You know, that's why I'm here, is that this should make a difference for you. That something maybe, if, if you remember one or two things or something touches your heart and you can take it out, that's cool. Then I feel like, oh, this was worthwhile. This was worthwhile. So, and um, I tend to look at things a little historically. I, I read the suttas a lot, so that may have a little bit about how I'm going to approach it, just what what arose to me to share. Um, and it's ironic that, I'll say one other thing, that in this offering the sutta, offering the dhamma thing, we often have a phrase among people who are in this role, which is taking the seat called taking the seat. And that means it's sort of like taking the seat that the Buddha taught took, sitting here and offering the Dhamma. And there's a sense in which often our best tactic is to get out of the way and let it just kind of come through. You know, this isn't personal. It ain't about me, that's for sure. But if something comes through and just because I'm listening to you folks and it kind of this thing happens. So there's a lot of interesting sense of how that is. I mean to be sure. I did write things down to kind of jog my memory and like persons like the Dalai Lama who can just sit and do it. It's amazing to watch. So not like that. Okay. So about the Dhamma. So at the end of his life, toward the end of his life, the Buddha did something remarkable, unprecedented. Instead of naming a person as a successor, he named the Dhamma. Here's a quote. He said, It may be Ananda was his close uh, attendant and his cousin. So this was an amazing thing to not say, Oh, this person's going to be next. He just named the Dhamma, that which he had taught to be next. And he said, It may be Ananda that some of you, some of you will say, without the Buddha, the sublime teacher, there is no teacher for us. No, Ananda, you should not think in this way. Whatever doctrine and discipline taught and made known by me, will be your teacher when I am gone. So that's just amazing. I think it's truly amazing and also really successful. I think it has a lot to do with the vitality of the Buddha Dharma here in 2023. Because by doing so, he turned people away from a cult of personality or from a sense of hierarchy. And also, there's this peril happens when sometimes there's a highly awakened being, and then there's a successor, and that successor isn't as highly awakened as the being was, and they're doing their best, but they can't help but sort of squish things down into their limited view, and then it all gets squished down. That's a technical term, squished. And this problem, as we know from histories of world religions, naming a human successor can be very difficult. It can be fraught with problems. Sometimes they fight each other. They dispute who's the real one. All kinds of nasty stuff happen. So Buddha Dharma's has pretty much avoided that. has just hasn't, hasn't happened because there wasn't any successor. It was the Dharma. The Dharma was what was to carry things forward. And helping the situation is the fact that perhaps arguably more than any other tradition, the actual words of what the Buddha taught are totally with us here in 2023, accessible. They can be found in the incredible depth of the suttas, this huge corpus of his teachings over 40 years. So that's amazing. I mean, there's there's nothing like that. So we can actually tap what the Buddha said and take it in and see what we understand from that. And then it keeps, you know... Evolving. So the words that the, of the Buddha are preserved partly because of Ananda, his attendant, who had a photographic memory. And also as a condition, he was his, he was his attendant for 20 years out of the 40 the Buddha taught. As a condition for be, being his attendant, he asked the Buddha to tell him any teaching that the Buddha did when he wasn't there. So, the Buddha committed himself to teach, to to telling Ananda what I taught and what he taught. Because if you start to read the suttas, you suddenly realize wait a minute, some of these suttas are happening before Ananda was around. So, how'd that work out? But we can surmise that the Buddha told told him what he said. And then Ananda remembered, remembered it all. So, what the Buddha taught in those 40 years was the Dharma. Dharma. And that's Dharma in Sanskrit, usually used in Mahayana traditions, and Dhamma in Pali, which is early Buddhism, Theravada tradition, two slightly different versions of the same word. So this is the second of the three jewels, this Dhamma, after Buddha, before Sangha. As a factor, we can depend on, we can land on, it can be our refuge as we go through this perilous journey of life and one could say that in our day-to-day life the dhamma of the three is the most important or i don't know maybe that's silly but it's the one that we turn to all the time it's like it's right there we land with it cuz shakyamuni buddha he after all lived 2600 years ago and while in a sense we can get a feeling in our heart of who he is what he said Nonetheless, that was 2,600 years ago. And the, the Sangha, which is wonderful, you're all Sangha here. We are the circle of spiritual friends. But also, you know, until we're Buddhists, until we awaken, we're all kind of capricious and conditioned and we've got stuff. So we can one way depend on each other and another way, kind of sort of not always, you know, safe, but it's not the Dhamma. So the Dhamma is as pure just pure sense of where to go, how to do it, what the message was. just wonderful. So the Dhamma is, it's like it's infinite and it's self-revealing. It's just the way things are pointed out by the Buddha. And the way he, in the suttas, He, he taught, he, he communicated to people who presented themselves. Often they presented themselves with particular issues or questions. So the way he did it, the metaphors he used were always different. It was constantly changing and adapting. So when we read the suttas, we'll find something click with us. I was like, oh, because it's sort of speaking to us. Other times, not so much, but it's really beautiful the way that was. And it, it shows you the flexibility. Of this, He just was, he saw, he had this vast awakened mind. And he was trying to explain it to folks who showed up. Now the word Dharma, he didn't make that word up. It actually existed prior to the time of the Buddha. It's embedded in the ancient Hindu tradition in which 2,600 years ago he was alive. It's in the Rig Veda. It means has a parallel meaning with sort of established support, established support. So it's a kind of an interesting way to work with it a little bit. There's a way in which, because it has such different expressions in the suttas, we can start to find some essence because we can hear different voices and different aspects and see what resonates and start to tune into the essence. And when, as some of you who do, the just may know, one of the things that's just so astonishing is when you go back and look at them, when you look at the words of the Buddha, the Dharma over and over again, over time, that which we thought we saw at one point changes when we look at it years later, because we changed. And they'll be like, oh, I didn't see that. Oh, you suddenly get what he means. It's amazing. you know. So there's this, there's this kind of infinitely unfolding aspect of the Dharma that's just extraordinary. So it's kind of like bottomless and endless. It's not just this sort of you know, instructions on how to fix a car. It just shows up and keeps deepening and deepening as you participate in it. So from one viewpoint, the term Dharma has... Has three meanings within Buddha Dharma, three ways it lands, and that's what I'm going to kind of explore tonight, see if this is a helpful way to, to get at it. So, three meanings, I'll just say what they are and then, we'll, then I'll explore them a little bit. They're, they're all closely related, interconnected, and distinct. One is Dhamma refers to the nature of things, just the ultimate nature of reality, how things are. And second, Dhamma is the path, the path we walk on, just the way, sometimes we call it the great way, you know, the path we walk on, how we hold our lives as we journey ahead. And then third, the Dhamma is the teachings, the very specific teachings that the Buddha left, this big, vast corpus of those, and arguably many teachings since then by awakened masters and all the different traditions of Buddha Dharma. So getting a sense of the first that the Dharma refers to the nature of things helps us understand the other two. And you could say that kind of how things are and the path toward liberation, they're they're interlaced. They kind of interconnected with each other. So from this viewpoint, Dharma in Buddhism refers to the natural laws of things that sort of constitute the natural order of things. You know, what's going on behind the scenes? There's this interesting Sanskrit term, which I just stumbled upon working on this talk, yata bhuta, which means reality as it is. And it's synonymous, this may be, sorry, I've been a little bit the weeds here, but it's synonymous with emptiness in Mahayana tradition. So it's this interesting sense that Knowing how things are helps us see the ultimate nature of things, emptiness. So it's interesting that the Buddha steered away from concrete descriptions of external things. The suttas are filled with places where someone tried to pin them down about like, how does karma work? And he wouldn't answer. Or when the Buddha's life ends, will he be here? Will he be gone? Will he be present? He wouldn't answer. So there's a whole bunch of concrete kinds of specificities that he doesn't respond to. His teachings, as he said many times, were about one thing, suffering in the end of suffering, or being caught in samsara and being freed from it. So all this dhamma focuses on that. And that's relevant to this question of The first meaning of the Dhamma being about the natural order of things, because it's not like this technical description, it's a sense of how things are. In the middle-length discourses, and I try to give citations sometimes when I'm quoting something, I don't always pull it off, but 63.8, the middle-length discourses, he explained why he declined to take philosophical positions. He said, because doing so, quote, is not beneficial does not belong to the basics of the holy life, does not lead to disenchantment, to dispassion, to cessation, to peace, to direct knowledge, to enlightenment, to nirvana. So they don't want people to get tangled up in a bunch of thinking about stuff. And with, you know, great respect for our sisters and brothers in many of the world's traditions is often a proclivity for people in power who are usually guys, males, like moi, To focus on the minutia of stuff you know how many angels can dance on the head of a pin and I looked it up and there actually was huge controversies about that which had some actual underpinnings behind it that made a little bit of sense but nonetheless it's a metaphor for how tangled up stuff can get but that's one of the beauties of the Dharma is it just keeps focusing on what's going to help us wake up and doesn't get tangled up in that stuff so this sense of it being about the natural order of things is a, is a broad kind of way to rest in it. It's about reality. And what's interesting, the Buddha in his very first Sutta, he said one of, that his core insights, he said, they quote arose in regard to ideas not heard by me before. So interesting. I always love that. This is mean, He saw stuff that no one had told him before. He saw how it was. So he looked at reality in a fresh way, which is what the practice brings us to. That's why we practice. We all, you've probably all seen, we look at reality in a fresh way that keeps happening, 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 happening as we unwind our tangles. And so some of the key understandings at the root of his teachings, that all things are impermanent, everything's changing, that, thus, because everything's changing, nothing has an inherent self, and if everything's changing and there's no inherent self, you can't depend on that stuff to be happy because it's going to slide off from under your feet. That's kind of how things are. That's how things are, and so that's what that's one way of looking at what the DOM is is just based on that that sense of how things are, which we need to check for ourselves to be sure. But that's what's cool about the teachings. It's like kind of point in that direction, check it out, see what you see. So he didn't point to any kind of faith, to believing in something, you know, because I said so, or because he said so. He pointed in a direction for us to see ourselves through our practice and to see it Clearly, not overlaid by grasping or thinking. There's this whole sense of cause and effect in the Dharma. The Buddha said, the world exists because of causal actions. All things are produced by causal actions and all beings are governed and bound by causal actions. They are fixed like the rolling wheel of a cart, fixed by the pin on its actual shaft. So this whole sense of cause and effect and this simple mindfulness practice we were just doing, you know, just cultivating awareness of things moment by moment as they appear and disappear. That's how we can accurately see how things are. We just pay attention. How simple is that? And this word Vipassana, it means clear seeing in Pali. So we're heading toward clear seeing. And therefore, that which we are clearly seeing is the nature of things. And in a sense, the Dhamma kind of interlaces. <laughs> therefore, this practice is, you know, inherently peeling back our conceptual overlays and, and, and our conditions and our traumas and all this stuff that we kind of overlay over how things are and the idea the, the sense of the practice of the dhamma is to see things clearly look at directly that we can actually see so this brings us to the second meaning of dharma or dhamma which is the way or the path And this is distinct from the third, which is the complexity of teachings. This is more a sense of just a sense of direction. And it's helpful because when we're on the path, it's a sense like we don't have all these ideas about it. We're just on the path. We're heading toward awakening. It's really a beautiful, simple sense of direction shared across all the different types of Buddha Dharma, the different ways it's manifested in the world. To be sure, there are specific tools and kinds of approaches for awakening within Buddha Dharma. And some of them are unique to different traditions and look very much unlike each other, which is kind of cool, which is kind of interesting. For instance, Rinzai Zen uses, as some of you may know, uses these sort of riddle-like koans. These koans you cannot solve logically, and it kind of pushes you over the brink out of your logical mind to see in the moment. And Vajrayana, Buddhism and Tibetan tradition, uses visualization of meditational deities are called Yidams, which represent all the ultimate nature. And by visualizing, we connect with them and then we see the ultimate nature according to that tradition. But they're just tools. They're just tools. Different ways of Dharma. Different sense of, of, of the same thing. And, and recognizing that they're tools... You know, we in this in our tradition, early Buddhism, we have this much sparser, simpler tool of mindfulness practice of just being aware. But when I don't, know, I don't know how to say this, sometimes when we look at different tools, like different, okay, like say in an orchestra, there's an oboe, there's a viola, there's a trumpet. How different are those, right? They're different tools to make music. And when we kind of embrace the fact that they're all different, then you can kind of get a feel for the sense of direction. That's called a symphony. You know, when they all come together and you can honor the work, there's different approaches, but you can get a sense of the direction, creating beautiful music. So in this instance, there's a sense of direction toward awakening with these sort of acknowledging these different tools. I got kind of a funny perspective on this because, personally, because I've been editing Northwest Dharma News since 2011. It's a, a publication put out by Northwest Dharma Association. And I've also been on the board and associated for about 25 years with Northwest Dharma Association. Point being that because of this, I've been rubbing up and working with a whole range of Buddhist leaders from all over the greater Northwest and Oregon and Western Canada for. Years and years and years. So I've learned. I've learned something from that, which is that the form doesn't matter. It's amazing. I mean, just, you know, I'm dealing with people like under deadline and all kinds of stuff that could be, you know, if the rubber hits the road, when people get real with each other, it could be all kind of snarky and weird and stuff. But it's not. It's the darnest thing. I've seen that the people, they're just almost almost invariably, they're just terrific. They have this bright energy. They have this kind of sense of humor. They're kind of not sticky. They're not so impressed with their ego. They're looking for depth. They're very dedicated to kindness of all beings, very honoring of different aspects of the Buddha Dharma. A a real sense of people, it's actually working. It's so cool. It's actually working. And they're sharing it with their communities in a really beautiful way. And you would think, you know, you might think that something is different in Zen and Vajrayana or Theravada would come up with like really different people. We'd all come out of the mold different and smelling different and tasting different, but not really. Not really. It's just very, very similar. So that's kind of beautiful. So I say that, I bring that up now just because of this sense of direction. You know, to me, it's a second way of looking at Dharma apart from the technicalities of what the Buddha wrote about, just a sense of direction to align ourselves recognize the nature of reality this practice helps us line up and be able to see how things are and it amazingly enough works in despite very different looking approaches and i got to appreciate our tradition because people don't get in a snit about who's right and who's wrong in Buddha dharma pretty much not 100 percent ever but in general over 2600 years people are pretty chill about that and kind of just interested it's like oh how does that work you know it's like your motorcycle's different from mine it's kind of cool how does that work so it's not it's not combative people aren't all hung up on who's right and who's wrong so I think what part of what we get from this is a, a sense of how natural the dharma is it's not like the buddha made up a bunch of ideas and is trying to get us to accept them it's rather this is how things are check it out and it takes people in a way of recognizing in a natural way oh yeah everything's changing don't get stuck oh yeah there's no concrete self anywhere don't get stuck you know that's universal across all the manifestations of buddha dharma and we're talking about the Dharma here. So just this underlying sense that this is natural. This is just how things are. And we're just training to see it. Simple as that. And one more doorway to glimpse this. I kind of love this. This is the, the flower sermon, which actually isn't a Pali canon. It was recorded in the 11th century as part of the founding of Chan Buddhism, which is the Chinese version of Zen. So in this story, which I do not think, if I may be wrong, I'm pretty sure it's because I, I have never seen it. It's not in the Pali Canon. But nonetheless, it says that the Buddha gathered his disciples. They gathered around and expected him to give a talk. But instead, he just held up a flower in dead silence, just held this flower. And they're all going, what? Kind of sort of waiting. But one of them got it, and he suddenly broke out laughing. It's just this moment. One guy got it. So that became, he became the founder of John Buddhism. The Buddha said in this instance, I possess the true Dharma eye, the marvelous mind of Nirvana, the true form of the formless, the subtle Dharma gate that does not rely on words or letters, but is a special transmission outside of the scriptures. So it's just a sense of how essential, simple, this is. So I'm not trying to get too far away from our early Buddhism, but just to help illuminate. Because it helps us, you know, if we think that the way we practice in in Vipassana and early Buddhism is kind of it, then we can get kind of like, it can be hard to see the underlying essence, but if we can open up our hearts a little bit, then it's easier to work with. That's part of why, you know, the guiding teachers did a whole year on the um the um was it the the, the bull? The Oxford. Thank you, the oxfording things. Thank you. What a team. Yep. You know, but the same idea, you know, just open up our minds a little bit and see underlying this this parallel. And Thus, how we practice the path and how we live day by day are, in fact, the same if we choose to live that way. You know this famous term, chop wood, carry water. It's like you bring it all back down. That's what you do. You chop wood, carry water. But be aware while you're doing it. I mean, that's a Zen thing, but be aware while we're doing it. So it kind of really brings it back to life. so there's this underlying note of simplicity and all this not complication especially in the second way of looking at the Dharma it's simple it's simple to get it that's not so simple that's that's, that's not so easy but it is simple and I get to sense you know and I've seen this around other teachers or the Dalai Lama they just they see the simplicity of things and they're trying to get it across you know They're trying to get it across. That's what the Buddha was doing. It seemed Mm -hmm. really simple to him. Everything's constantly changing. There is no inherent existence anywhere. Trying to get it across. He talked about this a little bit in the Nikaya, 7.6. He said, the Dharma is well-proclaimed by the Blessed One. It is visible here and now, immediate, inviting to be seen for oneself onward leading, and to be personally realized by the wise. So, you know, he's saying, each one of us, each one of you out there in Zoom world, we can see it. Inviting to be seen for oneself, onward leading, and to be personally realized. But, you know, we're, we're complex critters, aren't we? All kinds of tricks we have in our hearts. And so we tend to go... If the path is kind of this way, we go this way or we go that way, we do all kind of funny stuff, and that's why the Dharma is so inherently responsive as a great time master Achan cha and one of his he was very vigorous he was he was an extraordinary being he was um seemingly a mass of contradictions and there's something to learn from that because he could be incredibly sort of almost like loving and sweet and just caressing little puppy dogs heads and stuff like that just the most endearing loving grandfatherly figure and other times he could be incredibly fierce and harsh it seemed just slamming someone but it was what they needed he was responding to need to help them move along and he himself said oh People complain about me and say I'm not consistent because sometimes I say this, and then sometimes I say that, and I seem to have contradicted myself. But, he said, what's actually happening is if someone's walking down a path and they're going off on the left side of the path, I'll say, go right, go right. They get back on the path. Then someone else is on the path and they're going off the right side. If say, go left, go left. They get them back on the path. So it's kind of like that. You know, That's what the Buddha did. He's always helping us get back on the path. So as we journey, you know, it's important for us to see how simple this is. There's a nature of reality. There's a journey to see it. That's the Dharma. And it's going to kick us on the butt sometimes if we're wandering off here or there because of our blind spots. It'll help get us back on. That's what teachers do. That's what the Dharma does. That's what when when we're being aware, our own understanding can come and hit us in the face. And we'll see that we need to stretch ourselves a little bit or wake up in the place where we're blind. That's part of what goes on in practice. You know, the very things sometimes that seem like there's a difficult thing that keeps coming up and you wish it would go away. Well, you actually have to go through it. You have to stay aware right when that's presenting itself, and that's how it untangles. That's how it works. Tukul Uryan was a great Dzogchen master, Tibetan tradition. And he was interesting that he taught many Western Dharma teachers. Joseph Goldstein, Rodney Smith, I believe, studied with him, and a number of other Western Dharma teachers. He really recognized that something was going on in the West, even though he's a very traditional Tibetan master. And he said, The true sign of practice is that you are naturally and effortlessly without fixation. Also, that you are endowed with devotion, compassion, and pure perception. Just like the sky is filled with the warmth of sunlight. It is said that the difference between Buddhas and sentient beings is like the difference between the narrowness and openness of space. Sentient beings are like the space held within a tightly closed fist, while Buddhas are fully open, all encompassing. Isn't that amazing? You know, so that really shows what this journey is leading us toward. To be fully open and all encompassing. And that means we gotta journey through everything that's in the way, everything that blocks that. And this leads us to the third aspect of the Dharma, second of the Triple Gem, which is the specific teachings of the Buddha. So, as I said before, we are so fortunate that we have access to this giant scope of teachings he offered in the suttas themselves and some of you may know the core of these are in four collections and i'll just for your interest offer the names is the Majjhima nikaya which is the middle length discourses the Samyutta nikaya the connected discourses the anguttara nikaya the numerical discourses and the digga nikaya which are the long discourses so that's about that's thousands of pages if you put it in a book it's amazing. And, you know, one thing that's really interesting is when you read them, when one reads them, there's no contradiction. It's the darndest thing. I try it off yourself and say what you think. But almost completely, there's nothing in it where you read something, and go, oh, well, wait a minute. He said that over here or that seems weird or that doesn't make sense or that contradiction. It's not like that. The thing is just coherent. It's amazing. So it brings a lot of faith, you know, when you read it. It's actually, it's actually the real McCoy. And as an aside, we owe much of this to the monks of Sri Lanka, who transcribed the suttas onto palm trees in the Aluvihara caves in Sri Lanka in about 30 BC, so about 400 years after the time of the Buddha. I've been to these caves. Pretty cool. And it's because the uh, there was a famine. The monks, it was being kept in an oral transmission where the groups of monks would keep different parts of the suttas and verbally- transmit them to each other. That's how it happened for 400 years. And then they finally wrote them down because it was a famine and monks were dying off. And they figured they better, there was a danger of the chain getting broken. So they wrote them down. So now we're talking about the third aspect of the Dhamma, these teachings that he gave. And I've, I've read almost, I've pretty much read the all of those, all four of those, Nikayas, a bunch of many, many of them, multiple times. And I've really come to see them as like, it's like a Mahayana word, but it's like a transmission. They're like, the awakened mind of the Buddha is there. It's just amazing. And I mean, even in the middle of difficult times or complexities and sanghas or whatever, it's just there and you can access it. And it just keeps opening and opening and opening. Pretty amazing. Uh, for instance, uh, this is an instance: the Satipatthana Sutta. Some of you may be aware of it's number ten in the Majjhima Nikaya. It's where the Buddha tells how to do this practice. It's only fifteen pages, maybe twelve. It's short. And there's like I have about my own books about four books written about it. Some brilliant. You know, Joseph Goldstein has this huge book called Mindfulness, and Analayo has a whole bunch of books. They're extraordinary. But the point being, and I've read this thing, I don't know how many times. And sometimes I'll read and go, oh, I didn't see that. I keep seeing new things. It's so ridiculous. I've read books about it, and I've read it a billion times, and I've taught it multiple times, and then I'll read it, and I'll see something. I'll see something fit together in a way I never saw before. It's like, wow, it's really amazing. So it's kind of like that. I offer that to you. You know, Do your own exploration. If you are attractive. Some of you that may not just, I don't want to read a giant text. That's cool. But if you are it's there, or maybe you want to hear it, you know, I don't know, whatever works for you. But it is an amazing, amazing thing. And that's part of what here in 2023 keeps this alive. Because there's many, many people who constantly refer to the suttas, that's where they teach from, that's how they understand. So it's really, it's a clear, it's a clear link to what the Buddha taught. It's not 26th century years of interpretation lost in the mists of time. It's like, boom, right in the beginning. So it's pretty, pretty wonderful in that way. And so I would submit under the heading of taking refuge. We can, we can take refuge in what the Buddha said. And we're, you know, it's a funny thing. We here in early Buddhism are, Privileged, I say. That's part of why I've I've done a lot of Tibetan practice in my years of practice, but I've ended up being pretty much here. I know a number of people that have gone in this direction. It's just because of the access of the Sangha in this immediate sense is so clear. And then we can see what the Buddha said. I won't name names, but I a dear friend of mine who's a who's a very uh, she's a she well anyway, Tibetan teacher. Um, I was in her place one time and there was literally, was a copy of the Maja that was shrink-wrapped. I said, dude, you, I, mean, I didn't say dude because it wasn't a male person, but I said, you haven't opened that. She said, well, I've been studying other things, which is great, as doing what she should be doing. And there's extraordinary, extraordinary, you know, the Dharma does include what other great awakened beings have written. I mean, as you could, there's there's so much out there. You know, you just can't imagine. There's a Vasudhi, in our tradition, the Vasudhi Maga, the 5th century, a commentary written by Buddhaghosa from India on the suttas. And then in Tibetan tradition, there's Longchampa and great, great, great masters, and what they've written. So, and Zen, it's endless, kind of. And it's all the Dharma. It's all the Dharma. You got to kind of check with your heart. You know, sometimes you can read stuff that's sort of purportedly the Dharma, and it can get a little weird. So you got to check. You know, there's some contemporary persons out there that I'm not convinced to completely know what they're talking about, maybe. So you got to check, but go back to the suttas, then you're good. So that is a place you can really feel secure about. And then, you know, if you read something, reference back to what the Buddha said, see where it lands, you're probably cool. And that's why you have sangha, because you can bounce stuff off of people and see where your blind spots are, which is really handy. Because those little blind spots will just take you down a rabbit hole if someone doesn't whap you up at the side of the head and say, excuse me, you know, <laughs> you keep doing that. <laughs> so, pretty much getting towards what I had to say. But we can take, just to kind of review and check back, we can take refuge in the Dharma, in multiple ways. And one way is just to get a sense of how things are, you know, because that's ultimately how we wake up is that we see how things are. You know, it's not because the Buddha said things are impermanent. We see things are impermanent. Maybe because the Buddha said it, we have a view and a sense of what we're looking for, but then we got to see it or that there's no inherent self. We got to see it, but we can take refuge in that sense of how things are. And we can take refuge in the sense of direction, like what are we doing with our lives? What direction are we going? If we're going toward awakening and there's a direction to go in, then that's something we can take refuge in. And, you know, in this 2023 world with, you know, the best and the brightest churning out digital content to distract us and get us to buy things, To be able to just see how things are is pretty amazing and kind of against the stream. Although, to be sure, you know, it's a funny thing that at the time of the Buddha, there were people eyeball to eyeball with him who totally didn't get it, what he was saying and who he was. So it's not like, I mean, sometimes you might think, oh, time of the Buddha, everything was so perfect. There was a Buddha. It would have been so nice to be there. This is so hard. Yeah, I don't think so. You know, for one thing at the time of the Buddha, a lot of people totally didn't get it. I mean, his very own cousin tried to kill him multiple times and take over his, what he was doing, for instance. That was pretty gnarly. And then, you know, his two first royal patrons, Bimbisara and King Pasaneda, were both, during his lifetime, kicked out by their own sons had their kicked out of the other uh, positions by their own sons and one of them ended up dying in a prison right near where the Buddha was. So it was like really hard. I offer that just because if life here in twenty twenty three seems really hard, which it is, there are wars. There is climate change. I get that. But nonetheless, we can follow the path in the same way. Cause it worked then And it works now. The sense of direction and then turning towards, you know, all the resources, certainly in the suttas, but in other aspects of the Dharma. So let's sit for a moment.
1: Okay, now we have a number of,
0: I can think of two technical problems that I'm going to do wrong, but maybe not. So I'll, I'll say them out loud and can catch me when I mess it up, because I'm not used to dealing with this gear. We have very different gear on the east side. Um, if someone's speaking from Zoom World, I Zoom World, I Zoom World, I'm supposed to mute the mic so we don't get feedback. Cheryl's nodding enthusiastically. And also, this thing seems to be in the way. Is this in the way? Well, let me it work. I'm supposed to, I want to pivot this camera and point F there if someone's talking from here so that folks out there can see this person. And also, they are going to pop this full screen if someone's speaking to Zoom rules so you all can see them. So we'll do the best we can. Okay. So, um, yeah, we got about, are there announcements tonight? Okay, so we got about 15-ish, 20-ish minutes, if we wish, to explore any of this, what do I say, you know, thoughts, questions, or complaints.
1: <laughs> uh,
0: so What do you think, folks? So if, in digital world, if you can raise your little digital hand, that puts you up in the top of the queue and we can see you. And out here, you can just wave your hand if you have any thoughts. Yes. Now, could you please come over here so you can, because well, I know it's a compassionate act. This is helpful for. I'm going to let's see and bear with me while I try to
1: get all these things right. So you're going to do that. Yeah. No, I I know I was not. Could you hear her? If you knew while we're talking in the room, then they won't be able to hear. If you knew while they're
0: talking, then we can hear them. Got it. I screwed it up. I told you I would. So what she asked was, uh, she asked if there was any particular methodology for reading the suttas, how I how I approached it. Um, pretty, I mean, let's see. I would highly recommend, well, this sounds ridiculous. I'm not friends with Jeff Be- Be- Bezos. I don't even know him. Having said that, Kindle works really well uh, <laughs> because they're thick. I mean, the Margamataki is, depending what, well, it's about this thick. The Samutanaki is two volumes, depending on how you do it. So it's like two thousand pages. Um, so if you want to carry it around, a digital format works really well. But it, you know, the bad news is it's easy to lose your place. Um, so anyway, I you know, I just sort of. I just read them sequentially. And I started with a uh, Majjhima Nikaya. The Majjhima Nikaya, I'll just go briefly. The Majjhima Nikaya is 152 suttas. There are 15 or some of the core stuff in the whole Pali canon is in there. So it's just wonderful, wonderful stuff. Um, and they sometimes are 15 pages or a little bit shorter, a little bit longer. And I just read them from beginning to end. There's a, and there's a little synopsis of each one in the beginning Um the uh, Samyutta Nikaya, it's called the Connected Discourses, and it's basically big sections that are all about one subject and all these different, very short, or varying length, but some of them are short, discourses about, about a subject, like about impermanence or something. And so all these just subtly different angles on it. It's really interesting. You can kind of just drill down into it and get a sense of all these different aspects and where it echoes so he was responding to different people the anguttara nikai is so bizarre it's 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 the numerical discourses and it's organized by by numerically in terms of how many things are named in the discourse so if in a particular discourse he talks about three things that's in the threes if he talks about five things that's in the fives so it makes like no sense at all in one way, because it's just how many things, and it goes from the ones and goes up to about the 11s, and then <laughs> pretty much ends. But there's tons of fives and fours and threes, and that's just how it's structured. And then the uh, Dignanakai the has very long ones, and some of them are hard because they're, they tend to get a little mystical, and there are a couple of them i skipped. But there's some of the really fundamental ones about his life are there. So I just, yeah, so I read them uh, just, just, you know, I like kind of after practice. That's what I, and I still do that. You know, after practice, I'll read a sutta and just let it come in. They'll try to read them fast. Don't, don't, don't like, don't, you know, don't sit. I mean, you could, I don't know, whatever works for you, but for me to let them in. So I do it after practice and it's just really, really helpful in terms of practice and, and they kind of support each other. Um, And then sometimes there'll be like the, the Satipatthana Sutta, uh, you know, I've read it a billion times because it's it's right at the core of our practice. So sometimes I'll come back or sometimes someone will bring one up and go look it up or kind of like that. Yeah, Is that kind of, cool. Thank you. See, I thought I saw a hand up, maybe it went away. Any digital hands out here? Okay. Anybody else? Oop, I see something. Uh, Kathy, Now, now I understand.
1: Yeah, hi Steve. Can you hear me? Okay, okay. Thanks for your words tonight, Steve. And uh, my question was, um, can you recommend or do you know of places where we can listen to these read by someone else? I don't
0: know the answer to that question. I'm seeing. I'm not a very auditory person. So who was that that said yeah? Oh, I was just assuming, yeah. Uh, oh, like that was kind of yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I suspect. I'm sure there is, and I don't know where it is. But I, the, the miracles of the internet will find it out. There's, you know, Dharma Sea, but that talks about things. So, but the with that's also Dharma, but that's not the suttas. But I'm sure. I'm sure it's out there somewhere. But I do not know. Yeah. So, how's that for an answer? Anybody else?
1: Hmm. I'm always. Yeah. What's that? A screen reader would
0: it. Okay. She's saying a screen reader would do it. Got it.
1: Okay. Uh, Lauren. You're muted, Lauren. I thought Carla had her hand at first, but I'll just, this is a quick question. You, you rec. You said the Vasuti Maga or something like that. And was that like a commentary on the suttas, but it was early. Is that correct?
0: Yeah, the Vasuti Maga is a uh, 5th century Buddhaghosa, who was uh, in India. And, it you know, it's a way of looking at it that the, uh, the Pali canon, all of the suttas is such a vast Thing, and there's so many themes repeated, all kinds of ways that, you know, persons would want to organize it or try to make some sense out of it all. So that's what Buddhaghosa did. And it's a magnificent, giant work, which I humbly admit I've never been that attracted to. So I've only touched on here and there. Uh, but in fact, the um, as an aside, the way we practice loving kindness in our Western tradition actually comes out of the uh, Pasuti Maga. And you can get it, yeah, you can get it in printer digitally. Thank you, you're welcome. Anybody else? Yes, so, it's for everybody.
1: <laughs> but it doesn't work. We decided right? no
0: with thatug, we're just learning. I'm just gotta not turn it off. That was my bad, okay, testing, testing. Buddha two, three. Are we working? We're working. Patience is a good thing, my friend. There you go. All right. Okay. Are we good? Are we good? Can you S- hear this time? Is it working? Anybody thumbs up if you can hear me? Yes. All right. Wow. wow. How about See, look, we're progress. Wow. Um, so for a newer person, as I am, into meditation and, and mindfulness practice, with the goal of not overwhelming, what would you recommend mm. as to the suttas and all the various uh,
2: original, I would say, original yeah. writings, if that's possible. Yep.
0: And there is, what I'm thinking of, now I can't think of the name, It there is a book by, um, or translate um, Bhikkhu Bodhi, there's a number of translators. Bhikkhu Bodhi is extraordinary and the the versions of the Suttas put out by Wisdom Publications, are his, As another, if you look at Access to Insight online, is a whole other set of translations by Ajahn Jeff. Um, but Bhikkhu Bodhi did a wonderful treasury, and I can't think of the name of it right off the top, which is a compilation of his own teachings, which are very, very good, and then long, long sections of the suttas. So he's kind of walking you through different aspects of it. So that, that could be a good approach that's what i think bodhi is his name bodhi is a wisdom publications and someone smarter than me will know the name of that is that it i think you're right in his own words i think i think you're right any other nods does that seem like but
1: yes i i pulled some of these up and i can show you the table if you're interested what the oh you got it there yeah they're really pretty they have like the but, all
0: kind of oh, oh, You've got the different ones, but the one he was talking about this, uh, this treasury. I think, I think you're right. In his own words, is it?
1: <laughs> yep, yep, yep.
0: So I hope I was able to kind of get across a little bit about how how beautiful these are, you know, because that's sort of my intent, certainly. Uh, yes, you got a question over there? Thank you. Oh, do you have your pen? I can't. Oh, there you go. I couldn't see it where it was. Okay, so we can do this. Okay. Mute.
2: That's okay. Yeah, I think the color of my virtual hand doesn't show up very well on the color of my wall. <laughs> um, you know, you talked about um, how The more we hear the Dhamma from many different angles, the more we actually begin to hone in on sort of an essence. And I appreciated that a lot. I appreciate that a lot about our annual themes, because ultimately we're often learning about, you know, many of the same core teachings every year, but always through a different lens. And I do find that very enriching. What I was wondering was, um, it made me think of the two wings of the Dhamma insight and, um, compassion, wisdom and compassion. And I wondered putting you on the spot a little bit, Steve, because you're so um familiar with the Pali canon. And if you can't think of particular quote right now, that's fine. But I'm wondering if you can think, um, If there's a particular passage, or perhaps many, if the Buddha himself explicitly spoke about wisdom and compassion and their relationship, or their relationship to how we gain insight.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting question. um, You know, in so many words, I'm not sure if he did specifically so much. It doesn't ring a bell. I mean, not that I, I've only got this humble memory, um, but that does, that particular format comes up in Mahayana a lot more, you know, it's explicitly stated as you stated, which is a wonderful way of putting it. I can't remember, I don't think it's spated, I mean, it's, it's woven in, but I don't think it's stated per se in the suttas, although, or I haven't seen it, or not very much, or something. Mm-hmm. I'm sure it has Okay, I was just wondering,
1: yeah. Okay. Okay, folks. So if I could, um, you mentioned Joseph Goldstein's book on mindfulness, And if, if you um, I've spent years with that book and uh, they also, if you're, if you do audible, sorry, Jeff Bezos, but if you do audible um, you can, you can download the, there are three actually um, volumes that he, that he narrated himself and he has a beautiful voice and then there are then there's another on audible called mindfulness meditations that he does um he goes through the satipatthana um you know the the foundations um very systematically and those are those to this day um are very grounding for me so that yeah. can take you a long way joseph goldstein
0: yeah and i think that same set is also on dharma seed i think it's 46, 46 lectures that he did teachings on the satipatthana sutta which is extraordinary
1: really
0: yeah they really are yeah thank you thank you so much cool well you know what do you think folks If there's any other thoughts, we are here for a few more minutes. Otherwise, we'll. Uh... Any mystery hands out there? Okay. Okay. Well, why don't we go home to, whoops, Emery? Okay, let me
1: just do this thing now. Let me get myself.
0: Go for
3: it. Thank you you so much. Appreciate your time and energy tonight. Um, And I I loved what you said about the path and how that is such an organic, natural sort of intuitive experience of knowing like, am I moving on the path or am I not? Or, you know, I, I loved how, how you i had never thought of it that way but i wanted to ask you about the first aspect of dharma how things are or reality and i feel like i can get a sense of that when i'm meditating or when i pause in my chaotic day and um really try to experience the dharma and experience you know, what I sense and what is actually true and real and happening. But it's much harder for me to know what is real and true when things are moving quickly, when I'm having multiple conversations, my walkie talkie's going off, somebody knocks at my door. I'm thinking about like, oh, I have to remember to do that and that. I I have no idea what's reality in that moment. So I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on on that like very practical day-to-day question of what is real when things are really moving quickly.
0: I mean that's you know, that's the that's the very nature of a path of practice is is that we're learning we're we're uh gradually seeing more clearly how things are in the midst of difficulty you know it's easy it's easy easier when it's easy if we're in a 10-day retreat and it's more self-evident if we're in the middle of our walkie-talkie going off or whatever happened you know someone rear-ended us it's harder um but that's how we practice. And, and, you know, just in the instances that trip us up, there are hot buttons internally or externally to be cultivating mindfulness as those arise. That's our practice. And that's where we get more, we, we see more deeply that those things aren't inherently real and that they are impermanent and that ultimately They don't matter. We find it, you know, equanimity is what emerges from that. So it's a way, and what you said is beautiful and a perfect way to end the evening. You know, that's, that is, that is what the journey is, is to see through all the stuff that knocks us off the rails, to diverts us. That's exactly it. And each one of us, that's part of the beauty of Sangha, is each one of us has a different set of, things that knock us off the rails. And so kind of we can have compassion about our own by recognizing, oh, someone else's hot buttons or weak points are different. And then ours seem like not so insurmountable or inherently. So when we realize, oh, someone else is changeable or changing, or we see their vulnerabilities have, uh, you know, causes and conditions in terms of how they grew up or something. So you know, I just say just, just, just to, uh, you know, well, one great teacher of mine said, don't be surprised by what you already know. I always thought that was a great line. Don't be surprised by what you already know. So we know about our pot buttons and all that stuff. And just take them in. It's okay. Bring them into, pr- into practice. And watch what happens over years and years. And we may find that we're freer freer in the middle of the very things that used to just take us down. And that's how it works. And it's, you know, it's gradual because we're unwinding, you know, possibly unwinding unwinding many, many, many lifetimes of conditioning. Maybe that's the case. In which case, no no wonder it's so hard. So, yeah, does that help? Cool. All right, everybody. Thank you so much. And great thanks to the volunteers to Cheryl, to this handsome gentleman here whose name Dave. I Dave and 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 um, oh man. Huh? Oh, Bob and also who's who's doing this recording I'm just clutching on this. Oh, Ken. Ken, yes. So all these kind of people behind the scenes and the people who greeted and everything, everything. They're they're the they're the rock stars here. Yeah, so thank you so much, everybody, and may the Dharma carry you forward and may things seem simpler as you move ahead.